This is a conversation with Hui Jiangwu of the Associated Press on the chained woman of Feng County in Jiangsu Province and how videos of this chained woman, known as Xiaohua Mei or Little Plum Blossom, have caused China's internet to erupt in an unprecedented fury at government cover-ups, the lack of mental health care in China, sexism in China, gender imbalances, and larger conversations on class that remain highly sensitive in the censored mediascape of the People's Republic. I discuss with Hui Zhong the details about the Feng County incident involving Xiaohua Mei, how these point to larger systemic flaws within China's mental health care system and its oversight into human trafficking. We also discuss what Xiaohua Mei's case has in connection to larger discussions about feminism and how feminism is censored within China's public discourse. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast. And for print interviews on China, you can go to asiaarttours.com. Hi, my name is Hui John Wu, and I am a reporter with the Associated Press. I uh, technically work for the Beijing Bureau, but I am currently based in Taiwan for the foreseeable future. So we'll be talking mostly today about the Feng County incident, as I call it. And, and of course, you can discuss um, what it's referred to in China domestically by both netizens and uh, domestic uh, Chinese media. But I think for a lot of people listening, it's actually now very confusing. We just had the Olympics, but we're still getting a lot of reports on places like Xinjiang and Hong Kong and Inner Mongolia and places where journalists can't go. So I'm wondering uh, for journalists on the ground in China right now, or maybe journalists like yourself who shuttle back and forth if they can, um, what are some of the red lines that are existing right now for journalists in terms of what they can report on, what they can't report on, uh, and where they can and can't go in mainland China? Uh, so I think the first thing I should clarify is that I cannot go back and forth uh, very freely right now between Taiwan and China. But when we're talking about red lines in terms of reporting from from China on the ground, right, I think what we've seen, um, just talking to the few colleagues who are still there on the ground, is that, you know, it's like the normal surveillance and the normal kind of restrictions where you're followed on sensitive reporting trips. Um, but now because of COVID restrictions, you know, they have more of an excuse to boot you out of an area that you don't you know, they don't necessarily want you poking your nose around them. So um, a colleague of mine just did a story about uh, majority Tibetan areas, um, I think in parts of Sichuan. And there was one place that he had tried to go to. And basically upon arrival, they used COVID as an excuse to just send him right back to Beijing. But I, you know, I, I would say that red lines in terms of coverage are mostly in terms of this, this obstruction to reporting, right? But when it comes to actual topics, I mean, I think 
those who work for foreign media who have the ability to tell stories, right? They're, they don't, they're not under the control of the propaganda uh, officials. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't think that line, that there's necessarily a line for us as foreign media. Without naming names, how do certain media outlets still feed into Orientalism because they either find it profitable or uh, because there are biases? And how are maybe the next generation or uh, outlets that reflect on their reporting, how are they trying to report with more subtlety on China in this very tense moment between U.S.-China relations? You know, I would say that I think there's a lot of reporters these days who are Chinese-American or Taiwanese-American or just who have this dual... I hyphenated identity. And I think most of us, um, I feel comfortable saying that, that we do care about putting forth a more nuanced picture. How that ends up translating into articles. Um, and then, you know, if from a 10,000 foot view, I mean, I don't know, I'm not, I, I can't say that in terms of like, Overall, the tone of Western media coverage of China is probably, you know, we are focused on things like human rights on uh, what else, like US-China competition and um, Xinjiang and Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, of course, is also in there. And I think we focus on these issues, um, A, because they're newsworthy, uh, B, because a lot of, I mean, Chinese outlets can't cover it in the way that they can't cover it independently, right? Like they have to follow certain state guidelines or directions from the government. You know, at the end of the day, I think like what is important for us as reporters, and I, I, I feel like this is something that at least the AP, we, we tend to emphasize like a lot of our editors do care about like, okay, what is the human part to this story because once you get to like the human it brings it down to the individual level and once you're at that level then it's I don't know I think a, a lot of the rhetoric and I think a lot of the posturing uh that we see between those two between our two countries you know it's kind of canceled out by that or it's it's pushed aside so we'll be talking about one specific human today uh little plum blossom uh, and her case in Feng County that has sort of galvanized uh, public interest in, in China. Um, but I think it'd be useful before we get to Little Plum Blossom specifically to talk a little bit about uh, being a woman in China today or a woman identifying person in China today. Um, so when we say things like feminism uh, in China, what would be some contemporary examples? Um, and how does feminism sort of butt heads in China, at least in recent years, with what the government wants from women? Um, we all know things like uh, one child policy, and that obviously has been revised. But how does the state's idea of women, uh, I guess, sort of differ from the feminist idea of women in China? And how has that caused conflict uh, in recent years? Uh, I arrived in Beijing in 2018 in the summer uh, to study Chinese. And, you know, that was when the Me Too movement in China was really kicking off. Um, though it is, it, it's kind of hard to say that it, 
it took off. I mean, it it it, it came in fits and spurts, right? So um, that I think the Me Too movement is probably the most visible thing that we could uh, we saw in the last few years, um, and it's something that's relatable, right? Because it's global, and that was so one of the most prominent cases that came from that movement, uh, the Me Too movement, is. Uh, the case of the intern, uh, the former CCCTV intern who sued uh, Zhu Jun, who is like uh, one of the biggest household names in China. Um, like he used to host the Spring Gala every year for New Year's. I mean that. So like when you're when you're the host for that program, like you are a household name. You are very well known. And um, so Tianzi, that's, uh, that's the name of the intern. Uh, that's her pseudonym actually. And that's kind of how the Chinese government, uh, that's how the Chinese public knows her. Um, you know, she was one of the most visible faces throughout 2018, 2019, and even today. Um, and I remember when I first wrote about her in 2019, um, you know, there was so much positive um, discussion of her case on media, social media. Like, there were always, you know, people who were kind of upset, um, like, I guess you could call them male rights activists. I don't, I don't know what the exact term is these days. Um, there were always people who were like saying, oh, you know, she's kind of out to uh, smear Juzun. She's out to, she's making these maybe false accusations, but there was so much more um, of other women just coming out um, and saying, just like saying that they supported her. And, um, you know, she or her posts would get a lot of views and sometimes it would be trending. And that has really changed. And just in the last... I, I don't, I can't quite remember when it started, but I would say definitely in the last year and a half, the online environment uh, where, where these feminists had previously kind of leveraged, right? Especially during the Me Too movement to build support. Um, now the online environment has really turned against them. Um, so Sansa, for example, she can't post on her main account anymore. Uh, I need to check uh, if it was a year, but I, so she was banned from posting for, I think it was a year. Um, and she gets hate mail now. Like she gets these awful DMs in her Weibo account saying all sorts of like horrible things that I don't really want to repeat. And so I, I think, yes, um, the Me Too movement was perceived as a threat uh, because it was a student movement. Um, like in the first Me Too cases really spread from universities and then it spread to other industries like media, like NGOs. Um, and it was among young people, right? It was among young women mostly. And so I think the combination of the students and young people um, and just like how powerfully and how quickly those movements could 
kind of coalesce and you know they would quickly rally around one particular case or they would uh, try to arrange some kind of a protest at a university or if that didn't happen then um, they found creative ways to kind of talk about it on the on social media and you know that's organizing energy right like and like that's just that's organizing plain and simple and um yeah i do think they were perceived as a threat and we see that with how Sienza was treated um or how she is being treated now and you know like the court ruled against her yeah but i i guess the the part that i would say to this is uh, and like it's kind of the complicating factor is you know obviously like nobody is in support of sexual violence against women right including the chinese state and so one of the interesting like things one of the interesting developments and that happened kind of concurrently even as they were cracking down on these grassroots um organizing online was that you know they like updated the definition of sexual harassment in as part of the civil code, right? Because the civil code was like their, uh, was Xi's, Xi Jinping's like legislative, what, what's the word? Like his legislative, it's like, it was a key piece of legislation for Xi Jinping. They had updated that. I think what they did was in 2018, they first like issued the guidelines you know how they do this, they issue a draft of like the guidelines that they plan to change to the public. And then two years later, uh, they actually passed it. And so that was a small step forward, right? And then um, legal researchers and lawyers, they've pointed out that uh, the courts started uh, what is called a cause of action, um, which is basically, it's just like when you go to a court and you say, I wanna sue this person for X, Y, Z reason. And they basically categorize your case into buckets. And so they started in this new bucket uh, that was called uh, sexual harassment. So it was a civil, um, it was for civil suits. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of the feminist activists, they would say that this is in response to the uh, kind of outpouring of the outpouring of just voices uh, during the Me Too movement in 2018. Um, and I, I, I would conclude by saying like, those were not substantive enough, at least based on what the activists have said to me and what lawyers have told me in the past, but um, you know, they'll take what they can get, right? And that's a tiny step forward. And then you use that and then they're kind of building more upon that building more momentum to argue their cases, because now they can. What I think most interests me about uh, Little Plum Blossom is that this is a woman who, for all intents and purposes, was abandoned in a lot of ways, abandoned by society, abandoned by family, abandoned uh, to, to fend for herself, who ended in a horrible situation. And rather than everyone, you know, talking about Eileen Guo or, or Peng Shui and or just the local celebrity gossip that you constantly find when you go on Weixian or Weibo. Uh, everyone's talking about this poor woman uh, from rural China. Um, so uh, that's enough of a preamble. Could you please uh, talk 
to us about uh, Little Plum Blossom. Um, and I guess uh, why, if you share the same sort of hope that I do, why is it so interesting and important that this has galvanized uh, Chinese public opinion? I guess I'll do a quick introduction of her story. And the woman, So Xiaohuame, or we're translating that as Little Plum Blossom, um, she was she was filmed in a video uh, by this ran this Douyin blogger, right? And he he had filmed this video. It seems to help solicit donations for uh, of clothes for like poor rural families like hers. And she was kind of caught on video with a chain around her neck. And kind of one of the perhaps strangest things about that video, which is very disturbing to watch, uh, which is, was that um, A, he kind of blurred out part of the chain around the neck, um, but then B, it just was never fully addressed. Uh, in the course of, it was about a two minute video. And so what happened was he posts this video and then this video goes very viral and it spread all over. And this was basically a couple, it was a couple of days right before uh, Chinese New Year. So I think he posted it on January 27th, but uh, on January 28th was kind of when I've heard, heard about it. And people were angry uh, pretty immediately, right? And then, you know, the local counties in uh, uh, the local county officials in Feng County issued a statement on the 28th saying, oh, there was no instance of trafficking and that this is just a married woman, right? Uh, but people were kind of suspicious of that. They didn't really believe that statement. Uh, I mean, if you see a video of a woman who's chained up, uh, what do you think, right? And then, it, you know, as that first video emerged, there later emerged other videos of you know, her husband uh, and the eight children, right? So there were all these facts swirling around that just made it, it, it just seemed like a very bad situation, but no one really knew what was happening. Um, and then basically, you know, then it was Chinese New Year, then the Olympics started, and this story was kind of brewing in the background, and it had consistently been brewing, but I, I you know, and I would say there was still a day where adoration for Eileen Gu just took over everything. <laughs> um, that was, I think, when she won her first gold medal. Uh, but yeah, throughout the whole time, you know, you could just see online, whether it was on Weibo or WeChat or other platforms like Doban, like everyone was still talking about this case and bringing it up. And they would, and this is a thing that I noted in my article, cause I, you know, I just thought, I, I thought it was kind of a clever way of perhaps not getting your comments censored, which was like commenting below 
Eileen Gu stories or like Bing Duan Duan stories saying, hey, can we pay attention to what's happening in Feng County with this woman? What, you know, where's the investigation? Where's the central government uh, report or where's the CCTV report? Um, that's what people were asking for. Uh, basically the anger had boiled up to such a point, I would say last week, um, so like mid-February, right before the Olympics were about to end, like it, it, it really was palpable. Like you could see it everywhere and people were advocating for it and um, advocating for the woman and trying to, you know, calling on the authorities to do something, do something. And finally, um, last week, you know, the Jiangsu provincial authorities said, okay, we're going to set up an investigation group because basically nobody trusted any of the official reports from before. And those were issued by the local level officials. Um, and so today, the results of that uh, initial, I guess it would be the initial report of the investigation that came out and it was very, very long. And, you know, it tried to address some of the public concerns. So, for example, you know, it confirmed that Xiaohuame or Little Plum Blossom um, is indeed from the village in Yunnan that earlier statements had, you know, uh, had said she was from. And then it also addressed issues like uh, her age on the marriage license. So at one point, you know, some anonymous user had sent um, a photo of her marriage license to this former journalist. And then he posted it to his millions of followers, right? So that changed the conversation that people were looking at this marriage license and they were going, oh, wait a minute. The, the marriage license says she should be in her 50s, but the woman in the video doesn't look like that. And then they were, you know, everyone was comparing these photos and saying, are there two women? Um, who is this? And so the authorities really tried to address a lot of the rumors that have been going around. And, you know, their answer is that this is one woman and Sohame, and she had been trafficked multiple times. Um, she was initially sold to a man in another county in Jiangsu, and then it seems like she ran away. And then she was taken in and then sold multiple times until she was uh, then sold to the family in Feng County, where you know we met her recently, right? And through video, through seeing that video. Um, yeah, and then uh, there were some other parts to the report today, such as, so they fired eight officials. Uh, they, the police detained six more people uh, in, on, in relation to investigating that uh, human trafficking charge. So the multiple times she was trafficked, right? And then they also confirmed that the guy that she was married to, who she fathered eight, um, who, who fathered her eight children, uh, he had formally been arrested. And then 
the woman and her uh the woman who sold her um was also had also been arrested as well as well as that woman's husband how instrumental was it uh or how likely was it that this would have been sort of swept under the rug uh, if it wasn't for the action of citizen journalists, of people trying to go visit this woman, of many, many, many different people, either crowdsourcing or like uh, this one journalist you mentioned, um, keeping this story in the public eye. And then anger, like we're seeing on this case, doesn't, I think, typically happen like an idol phenomenon. It's not like crashing into you. <laughs> it's not like something that just all of a sudden um, erupts through the country. Could you talk about um, the work of the public in keeping this in the public eye when maybe the government, uh, either domestically or nationally, would have tried to sweep this or ignore this? Uh, and what are some of the systemic issues that maybe have been bubbling under the surface for a long time in China that's led to such a sudden outpouring of anger about Little Plum Blossom's case? Yeah, I think the the Chinese public really kept the story alive. That's the angle that I took for the piece because I, I, I just thought that was the most interesting way to uh, write about it and also kind of the most accessible way to write about it because I am in Taiwan. Like the reality is I cannot go to Feng County, right? To figure out what's going on with this woman. And there were so there were so many examples. As um, I was reporting out the story, and I was just looking at all the examples on social media of what people were doing. Like people made so many intricate charts, uh, just detailing all the official statements and their inconsistencies. And they they would like break it down by like, oh, like DNA tests. Like like one row would be like, did this did this statement mention DNA tests? And then was there some evidence of human trafficking? And was there evidence of arrest, right? And it was, um, it was just so detailed. Um, and then, yeah, no, of course there were uh, people who actually took tangible action. So these two former investigative journalists from Yunnan, they went to, they drove to the village, they talked to those villagers and they asked about, oh, does this person actually exist? You know, it is was there someone named Xiaohuame here? Um, and they did confirm that. Uh, but then was she the woman in the video that, you know, that there was no way that they could answer that, right? And they didn't have access to DNA testing or anything like that. And then um, the other case, perhaps, uh, I, I think that's also gotten a bit more attention now, is that there were these two young women who went to Feng County to try and visit um, Xiaohuame and try to, you know, give her some kind of support and um, try to raise awareness about this. And they were detained uh, just based on what we could tell from their social media. And that's what they said on, on their social media. Um, I couldn't reach them. And then, but I did talk to a women's rights activist who was in touch with the people who were following their case. And she confirmed to me that they were detained, right? So they were detained for a few days. And what they had done was they were just driving around um, Feng County and 
you know, talking to or women that they would come across and say like, oh, like, have you heard about this case? What do you think about, what do you think about it? Um, and then they would write slogans on the car that they were driving um, and they would write it with lipstick and, you know, and then they would post about it and their posts got um, reposted a lot and were quite popular uh, and reshared uh, many, many times. And yeah, I mean, these are just some of the most prominent examples. Uh, there's so much more, um, you know, people really did sleuthing, like looking at like photo comparisons of the woman from the video versus the woman from the photo of the woman from the marriage license versus there was yet another woman who, you know, uh, she was uh, she was from Sutran and some say that she her face and her picture matches the face of the woman in the original Douyin video um, more than the woman in the marriage license, right? And I, I think seeing that level of activity on this, uh, I, I had never seen that before on the Chinese internet. And I thought what was significant about it was, you know, we know it's a censored space and it's a very heavily censored space to the point where sometimes like the censorship is, it, it can be automatic, right? They have algorithms that can just prevent you from posting or they'll delete it immediately or you post something and no one sees it. And so in spite of all the heavy censorship that this still kept on going, um, I think you can only attribute that to the Chinese public and how widespread um, discussion, discussion of this issue was. And it was both people in China and also diaspora. So for instance, like my mother, um, she, you know, she, she kept sending me videos uh, throughout the last couple of weeks, all the videos that she had seen on WeChat. It's very easy for a lot of people uh, global audiences where all they're hearing about is Beijing, 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 uh, or Shanghai, or uh, Hong Kong, to think that that is all China is. This woman did not come from those worlds uh, and probably will go her whole life uh, without seeing, you know, like a Pudong. What does this case illustrate about some of the systemic issues um, that the, the majority of, of Chinese citizens live under in terms of class, uh, in terms of, of gendered violence in, in rural areas. Um, what are some of the systemic issues that this points to and, and why is it important you know, for global audiences to know that this is part of a far larger story? This is not something that sprang out of nowhere. Um, so could you talk a little bit about this, this other China that we, we don't often see in international English language media and how some of what Little Plum Blossom has faced comes from larger systemic issues that unfortunately will keep reoccurring unless they're addressed or reformed? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the main issues that her case raises is of mental health, right? And what does mental health care look like? Um, what can you access? If you are in a rural area, a small town, like if you're not in big cities like Shanghai or Beijing, um, 
and I had talked to this U Chicago uh, professor who she studied mental health in China. And actually, you know, one of the first things she said to me, which I was kind of taken aback by initially was that she, she said, oh, because uh, I asked her about the chain, right? That was the first thing I asked her about. And, and she said, you know, like there are cases where it's actually understandable. And I, I was surprised by that, but she explained it as saying, you know, the situation for mental health care, uh, especially if you are from a small rural place, like where Xiaohuame is from or where um, much of the population still lives in, is that you, if you have a mental illness, you don't really have a lot of options, right? There's uh, the two main options facing you are either you, the family member, takes on the entire burden of caring for this person, or the second option is they, the, the person with the mental illness is sent to live in a mental hospital for a very long time, perhaps their whole lives, right? It's not, and there's no in-between options. And that's what she was saying. So she had told me about a case where um, she was doing field work and she had come across uh, a father who had had to lock up his son uh, in a room. Uh, there was no chain, but you know he had to keep his son locked up in a room because the son could uh, was kind of erratic and they think would hurt, like would throw things, right, and break things. And but she told me like she wasn't necessarily um like she didn't see it as a case of neglect because it was very clear that the father like cared for the son like the father tried to you know uh give him a dvd player so that he could watch movies or so that he could have some of his material comforts met and the when the community health worker who she was shadowing kind of offered to this man like oh do you want your son to go to the hospital um the man said no because his son had had been had faced violence at the hands of other patients in the hospitals, and then the community health worker was also kind of relieved because um, the community health worker sees how few beds there are that's available, right? So this is like another systemic issue just in general. There's very um, few doctors available to the population, uh, I don't remember the exact rate out of 100,000, but it's um, it's to the point that it, like it, there's a huge amount of pressure on doctors. And then there's also a huge amount of pressure on public infrastructure like hospitals. Um, yeah, and so, I, I mean, as for the gender issue, I mean, I think we're all aware at this point of the gender imbalance, right? There's too many, there's too many men and not enough women uh, because of, in part, the preference for sons. And that is what results in bride trafficking, right? Like men will pay for a bride uh, if they can afford it. And then women from rural areas, disadvantaged areas, or even other countries uh, will come because, you know, 
perhaps some of them come because there's no choice. Others choose to come also because there's no choice, but because if there's no choice in circumstance, so it might be an economic um, decision. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's so many overlapping issues, right? And then there's also the issue of marital rape, right? Like marital rape is not considered rape. It's not in China and it's not criminalized. Um, so how, and how all that overlaps and kind of combusts in this one case, I think uh, that's, that's partially one reason um why it's blown up so much and i think the other reason is that uh, you know my colleagues and i we interviewed some people in in beijing and who were just shocked that this was still happening and this was also kind of some of the online commentary as well right because china has developed so quickly and grown um like because china's economy has grown so fast and many people have reaped the benefits that it becomes very hard for say you know a young 30 something woman in beijing who's well educated uh, to imagine that this could be the life of someone in her country maybe just a thousand miles away, or in this case it was 500 miles away. I mean, I think we see that kind of disparity in between uh, in all countries, like in the US as well, but this video, some, I mean, I, I think it really did shock people to the core in the way that uh, there was a comment made by the premier Li Keqiang, maybe two years ago, I believe he said 60% of the population earns less than a thousand yuan a month. A thousand yuan is about $150. Um, and that comment also went viral, right? Because like, yes, it's true in a country 1.4 billion, you have a lot of rich people and like very, very wealthy people who had done, who have become very successful entrepreneurs and just taken advantage of the economic growth and have been able to seize it. But there's 1.4 billion people. So there's still a lot of people who do not live that life. And I think we see that in this case. You and other journalists, uh, both within uh, Chinese language reporting, have done an excellent job, I think, unpacking that this is just an, this just isn't some isolated tragedy. This is part of larger systems and not everyone ends up like little plum blossom but they are part of these larger systems that you know maybe a well-to-do resident of beijing uh, or a well-to-do uh, uh, global citizen watching uh, eileen gu is not aware of exist in a china or in america or just like the protests we had here for black lives matter there's a lot of things people don't know about and there's a lot of instances that may seem isolated that are part of something much bigger. Um, going forward for this case, what are your hopes for how media covers it? And what are your hopes for how audiences receive it? And why for a well-to-do resident in Beijing or you know, someone listening to this on their Apple laptop in a cafe in New York City, 
why should we care about rural China? If, if I'm going to be blunt and ask a, a tough question to conclude a, what's been a very informative conversation. Um, that is a tough question. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't know. Why should anyone care about any of it? Which is kind of like the cynical and uh, answer that I could get right. I. I think. So let me tell you, I, I guess I would say what caught my attention was how much Chinese people cared about it. And that said something to me, right? I, I, I hope I interpreted it correctly. I don't, you know, I can't say 100% whether I have done that um, correctly, but I, I, I don't know, I guess I, I, I just think it's these very human moments uh, that I, it's kind of like the bread and butter of journalism, uh, of telling sadly, sometimes like very tragic stories, but um, it's not entirely tragic, right? In that like, everyone has kind of galvanized around her. And I don't know, why, why do humans like sad stories, right? Well, I, someone said to me recently, they liked reading tragedies because, or tragic stories, because it brought out both the best and worst of humanity. And I think we see that in this case. And you know, why should someone sitting in New York reading this on their Apple laptop, which is probably made by Foxconn uh, in China? Why should they care about it? I, I think, you know, I think it goes back to the question that you asked earlier about what is it that foreign media can get wrong about China and about and, and, you know, my answer then, and I, I guess my answer with this piece and why we should care is it comes back to just about being humans at the end of the day. And maybe that's a very cliche answer and it's a very basic answer, but I also think it's something that uh, can be forgotten in the course of reporting. And especially, you know, when you are a reporter writing for a national outlet, like the AP, or in this case, we're international, but in the US, we're national, right? Um, we're often writing about very big things. We're talking to big governments and big institutions. And yeah, and, and, and I think a lot, of, a lot of the best journalists I know, we try to remember to bring it down to the smaller level, the, the level that we as humans can actually kind of comprehend. Thank you for talking with me about these difficult uh, subjects uh, and for writing about them uh, with the care and the nuance that you do. I do uh, endorse full-throatedly your reporting and I would recommend it to anyone. Would there be one story that outside of this has really interested you that you could share that you've already published? I mean, if we're if we're self promoting here, I, I I like I I like the story that I did right 
before the Olympics. And actually, I, I kind of reported most of it last year. Uh, and it was about the textbooks, the Uyghur language textbooks. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I, I really like that story because um, I got to learn a little bit about Uyghur culture through reporting it and kind of learning about who some of their best writers are and the people that they considered heroic. And it was also just this fascinating glimpse into this time of history that I knew absolutely nothing about. And I'm not, I'm not a history buff, uh, I have to confess. Um, but I still found it really fascinating. It was a, and these textbooks basically had stories uh, that were previously sanctioned by the ruling government, right? Um, and these stories were all about Uyghur, uh, Uyghur rebels fighting KMT soldiers, right? Because the KMT was in was in charge of China then. This was before 1949. Um, and for me, it was just kind of uh, really interesting because it now that I am in Taiwan and have learned about the KMT history and kind of who they are uh, and connecting that a little bit back to the mainland. Um, I just felt almost full circle. Um, and then, I mean, of course it's, you know, it's yet another tragic story because there were people, uh, there was one education, there were, sorry, there was one, no. There was one education official sentenced to death, but with a two-year reprieve, so likely it will be converted to life in prison. Um, and there were multiple Uyghur officials and editors sentenced to very long terms in prison because of these books, right? Um, it, I just wanted to kind of shed light on something that seemed like it was already, it, had kind of been done like we talked about the textbooks um but actually there was all this and like because we knew about these uh the prison sentences um already right um but actually there was kind of this fascinating history and there was a shifting narrative by the chinese government on uh this period of xinjiang's history
Thank you.